0: As you will see, the reading is from Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find it on page 954. Colossians one, fifteen to 23. The Son through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, And do not move from it, do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant.
1: I get organized here for a minute. My short eyesight and all these sort of things I need to uh, accommodate. Friends, uh, thank you and uh, as I said uh, in the earlier service I want to thank you very much for uh, what's been a delightful weekend for me. Uh, It's been terrific to be with you and I do appreciate uh, the warm hospitality particularly of the Munroes. It's been lovely to uh, be in their home for a couple of days and uh, enjoy the warmth of that family Uh, but it's also been uh, a special blessing to have to enjoy the warmth of this family. Uh, over this weekend and a privilege for me to be here with you. Uh, turn again, please, uh, in your Bible to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, that passage, I think, might be printed in the bulletin, is it? In the, Is it there printed for you if you haven't got a Bible with you? But a bit better, better still, really, to have a Bible open at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And... Uh, If you have the booklets from yesterday we're on page 17 is where the notes are. I want us to begin however as we come to this uh, last study we've been looking at a little tiny episode, one of the most remarkable I think, one of the most remarkable little episodes in the history uh, recorded uh, in the pages of the Bible. Uh, This story of David and Bathsheba and and the consequences that flowed from it. Mind you Uh, I I tend to find that whatever part of the Bible I'm reading tends to become the most important part in the whole Bible. You had that experience? Um, And so I I, I sort of caution that there might be a whole lot of other really remarkable incidents. In fact, I'm sure that there are. Uh, But this one is remarkable, isn't it? This uh, story of of, of David's uh, astonishing fall uh, in chapter 11 uh, and all that we've read about there and then what we saw earlier this morning about this word from God to David, uh, which shattered him, but then became the word that the Lord had put away, the Lord had taken away his sin. I want to begin our thoughts um, uh, in this last session by uh, some bigger thoughts uh, about the, the, the broader things. Let me just remind you of some very obvious things. The first is that God is powerful. God is all-powerful. Of course he is. You sort of almost say by definition he is. But God is also good. And I think that there are times when we are deeply conscious of both those things. Perhaps you've had the experience of a prayer being remarkably answered. And you say, God is powerful and God is good. Or perhaps you just pause and marvel at the astonishing wonder of God's creation. And you look at it and you say, God is powerful, and God is good. Or perhaps you see God's providential hand in some situation where there was a potential disaster, but actually God brought good out of it. And we say, God is powerful and God is good. Or perhaps you just reflect on the the spectacular adventure of simply being a human being. You say, God is powerful and God is good. In so many ways, the products of the power and the goodness of God surround us. If only we just open our eyes to see. But our problem is that we are also surrounded by too much that challenges our confidence that God is powerful and good. Too often we feel that our prayers are not heard and we find ourselves asking, is God powerful? Is God good? Too often we see terrible natural disasters that wreak havoc in God's creation. And we find ourselves asking, is God powerful? Is God good? It's not uncommon for a disaster to come out of something potentially good. And we ask, is God powerful? Is God good? And let's not get started on the contradictions in human nature. It isn't all a wonderful adventure, is it? Now, it's not possible to make sense of all this sort of contradictory information coming to us, contradictory evidence, so it seems. You can't work that out. You can't make sense of it just by looking at the world, looking at your life, looking at things around you and and, and trying to think it through. The Bible teaches us that, and I've got four points on the notes. One, number one, the whole world and everything else for that matter has actually been created by God and is ruled over by him. And that's why we see so much that really does remind us of his power and his goodness. Two, what God has created has been deeply distorted by human sin, human rejection of God, the consequences of which have been cosmic. And that is why there is so much around us, we see so much that is not good. There is a deep alienation between the creator and his creation. And three, God is not yet finished with his creation. He has promised to establish his kingdom forever. And that promise is a promise to restore the goodness and beauty of all things. And he's going to do it. And four, we can know all this because the work of reconciling all things has actually begun and God has made known what he is doing. That's what the Bible has been given to us for so that we can know God's promise and what God has already done. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to God's purpose to restore all things. Through Jesus' death on the cross... The problem of human sin was decisively addressed. Uh, The reading in Colossians helps us to see that. Uh, Go back and and read read the whole of the letter of Colossians to see a number of the things that I'm drawing attention to now. And the power of evil was disarmed in Jesus' death in a way that we don't fully understand, but we're told that it is so. Jesus' resurrection from the dead was the beginning of, of the reconciliation of all things, the beginning of all things being put back together again in God's creation. And this work of reconciliation is going on now. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. You see, Christian people are people who experience the power and goodness of God in all the ways that I kind of sketched a moment ago, but particularly in the restoration that the kingdom of Jesus Christ brings. This restoration is what Paul rejoiced to see in those Colossian believers. If you read the whole letter, you'll see it. He wrote to them and he said, I'm rejoicing to see your good order. And the firmness of your faith in Jesus Christ—that's a sort of literal translation of Colossians chapter two verse five. There were people whose lives were being put back in order again, uh, put brought back to more and more to what they were meant to be. And therefore, among the many ways in which we see the power and goodness of God, none is actually greater than the death and resurrection of Jesus. We see and experience the restoring power of God in our own lives and in the lives of those around us who are changed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. We see, uh, and please, I think it's wonderful for us to learn to appreciate this, things that we take for granted sometimes. When you see people who are living wholesome, unselfish lives... And to pick up the subject that we've been thinking about over this weekend a little bit, when you see people whose sexual behaviour is wholesome and unselfish, keeping their sexual natures for marriage, replacing sexual immorality and impurity and doing whatever you feel like, which is around us in our culture, when you see to change the subject, when you see kind and generous speech instead of anger and malice and slander, humble and forgiving and loving patience where there was once arrogance and resentment. Uh, we take, start to take this for granted in the Christian fellowship sometimes but it is actually remarkable. I remember a few years ago at, uh, at Moore College where I was uh, involved on the, uh, at Moore College for many years and I was sitting with a student who'd come there his first year it was about halfway through the first year and this uh, student had gone back to where he had been working uh, previously. Uh, it was in a hospital just down the road uh, and he came back to college to this particular Christian fellowship and he said I'd actually forgotten what it was like. He'd walked into his workplace, which wasn't a terrible workplace, but he noticed how people spoke to each other. He noticed the one upmanship. He noticed the putting people down. He noticed that. And he said, There's there's a quality to Christian relationships. We're not perfect, we're far from it, but do notice the goodness of what God is doing among us the restoration of human lives. Um, We're witnessing when we see that, when we see people speaking to each other differently to the world around us we're witnessing the power that raised jesus from the dead at work in human lives and it's the power and goodness of god that is at work putting the whole creation back together again working in human lives it's astonishing and it's wonderful and we shouldn't be taking it for granted wherever we see it now what's all that got to do with the life of king david you say all very interesting but what's it got to do with king david In the life of King David, all of that was anticipated in a way that is remarkable that we're about to see. The power and goodness of God was at work in David's kingdom and there too, it was astonishing and wonderful. If you're not astonished by the end of today, come and talk to me and we'll have a chat about it because you should be. It'd be my fault if I messed it all up and you're not astonished. But of course, it needed to be astonishing and wonderful. The promise of God's kingdom, which we heard this morning in uh, 2 Samuel 7, earlier on, became actually very difficult to believe when you saw what David was like. When you saw his weakness, when you saw his wickedness, when that became apparent, how can you believe that God is going to establish his kingdom, restoring all things, through this man and his descendants? King David committed adultery to cover it up. He had the the, the woman's wife, the woman's husband murdered. Uh, then he married the widow and claimed the son, who was born of the adultery. And all this was being done by God's king. How can you believe God's promises when you see David? What's God going to do? Well, first we've learnt that God saw it all. David tried to cover it up, but it hardly did any good. He wasn't wasn't able to conceal what he'd done from the Lord. Second, the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David to, to confront David with his crimes and the consequences. We heard that this morning. And that much is what God had done with Saul when Saul had disobeyed him. Then the Lord had sent Samuel to confront Saul and what he'd done and to pronounce the consequences. You can read about that back in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And all of this is very important. It's important for us to understand that God's kingdom will not tolerate wickedness. But in David's case, there was something more astonishing still. When David was brought to his knees by the word of the Lord and confessed his sin, you remember he was told, the Lord himself has taken away your sin, you're not going to die. David's sin did not destroy everything. Actually, Saul's sin did. But David's sin didn't. Because the Lord himself dealt with David's sin. What would that mean? Well, David's crimes still had consequences, terrible consequences. But David's sin did not destroy the power and the goodness of God. Even at our worst, we're not able to do that. We're not able to stop God being powerful and good. And therefore, God's promises were still sure. (coughs) excuse me a moment the 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 first terrible consequence of what David had done was that the child that had been born out of his adultery with Bathsheba was going to die that's sort of the point where we got to uh, earlier this morning in chapter 12 verse 14 Uh, it was sort of almost as though the Lord had laid on another the consequences of David's sin But as the child fell ill in chapter 12 verse 15 we wonder how God's promise, you remember God's promise was about a son of David, how could God's promise possibly survive the consequences of David's wickedness? And the first thing we're going to see now in our passage uh, at this stage is that David himself was a changed man. His behaviour perplexed and troubled those who were around him and it surprises us. And the only explanation for the difference between David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 yesterday and David in 2 Samuel 12 verses 16 to 31 that we're looking at now is the impact of the word of the Lord that Nathan spoke to him that we saw earlier this morning. Let's look carefully at what David did. As the child lay stricken with illness, we're picking it up at verse 16, David pleaded with God for the child. That's a different man to the man you saw yesterday, isn't it? The man who had disregarded God for so long, the man who had done so much evil, as a consequence of disregarding God, at last pleaded to God. That is, he prayed. The man who for too long had acted only in self-interest at last cared about someone else. He pleaded with God for the child. Now, I suppose in normal circumstances that doesn't surprise us. Many parents of critically ill children have prayed to God for their little ones. But these were not normal circumstances. And what was happening to David was not normal. What was happening to David was what, it was not the same as what happens to those of us who are deeply troubled about the health of our children. The sickness of this child was no ordinary sickness and the father who prayed felt more, although not less, than a parent's natural love for his child. Consider first that this boy was ill because the Lord struck the child. You see that in verse 15? David had been told that this was because of David's terrible crimes. You see, David knew that his son's sickness had to do with God's disapproval of what David had done. It was therefore a humbled David who pleaded with God for the child. It was as though David said, Lord, my son is suffering because of me. Please have mercy on me and have mercy on him. How different from the man who took Bathsheba and murdered her husband. And second, if David understood, as I think he did, that the child's death was in some sense that we can't really understand going to be a substitute for his own deserved death. Verses 13 and 14 seem to imply something like that. David's prayer may have implied a willingness to die himself rather than the child. Was the man who'd arranged a murder to save himself now willing to die to save his child? He was a changed man. Third, Nathan's visit to David must have reminded him of the promises that God had made to him. God's word through Nathan, the Lord has taken away your sin, had confirmed God's gracious goodwill towards him, God's kindness towards him. David pleaded with God for the child, knowing that God was gracious towards him. That's what had changed him. And fourth, we should see the child as David almost certainly saw him in the light of God's promise. God had said, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. David's prayer for his son was prayed in the knowledge of God's promise concerning his offspring. And the fifth thing to notice here is that it is particularly striking that David pleaded with God the God who had just pronounced terrible consequences for his crimes that involved the life of the child. The severe judgment of God didn't make God unapproachable as far as David was concerned. On the contrary, God's grace that had taken away his sin made David confident to plead with God. A little later, David's going to explain his prayer Uh, in his own words. We'll hear that in just a few moments. The earnestness of David's prayer on behalf of the child is obvious. Uh, Look again at verse 16. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. In verse 17, the elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground. But he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. David's behaviour was such that his trusted servants became concerned for him. However, he was not willing to be distracted from his prayers for the child, even in order to eat. And this went on for seven days. Pick it up at verse 18. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid, afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do something desperate. Seven days was, in those days, uh, often the period of mourning after a death. David's seven days uh, of pleading with the Lord before the child's death looked like a period of mourning to the servants and they were fearful therefore what might happen after the child died. He may do himself some harm. However, David was alert. Look at verse 19. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves and he realised that the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. It's an awful scene, isn't it? Death dominates the scene. Six times in two verses we've heard that the child is dead. The terrible, bleak reality is unavoidable. David's earnest prayers have not averted the announced judgment. He has lost his son. And like the servants, we wait to see what the grieving father will do now. Verse 20. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house and at his request they served him food and he ate. That's not what the servants expected. He resumed the activities of normal life. And this included going into the house of the Lord which in those days was a tent where he worshipped, that is, he humbly bowed down to the ground before God. David remind you of someone else in the Bible story? Reminds me of Job, whose response to his terrible losses, you remember, was equally striking. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But that's not normal behaviour, is it? David's behaviour was not normal, and the, and the, the, the servants were perplexed. Uh, verse 21. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting in this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. David's conduct, you see, seemed to be the opposite of what made sense. He appeared to mourn before the child died, but after the child died, when grief would be expected, he abandoned his weeping and returned to his life. Well, David explained what he is doing in verse 22. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. See, David's behavior before the child died was based on the possibilities of God's grace towards David as David saw it. David didn't know what God in his kindness might do As far as he knew, the Lord might have permitted the child to live. And that's why David pleaded with God for the child. Certainly he longed for the child to live. I think, friends, it's very important because of some of the stuff that goes around about prayer and and, and faithful prayer, it's very important to notice that David's prayer for his child did not involve knowing what God would do. He prayed because God had been gracious towards him. And who knows what God in his grace might do. That's why he prayed. But not because he knew in this particular matter whether God would or would not grant his request. But after the death of the child, God's will was clear. David knew that his prayers would not now bring the child back. David understood the finality of death. The possibility that had led him to pray had now gone The time would come when David himself would die and join his son, but the son would not now return to his father. I want us to appreciate, though the account is rather brief, that there's nothing cold here about David's quiet acceptance of the death of his child. What there is, is a remarkable contentment with God's wisdom and a trust in God's goodness and seeing that in David you're looking at a remarkably changed man yeah but the biggest surprise is yet to come we've seen that David's crimes though forgiven still had consequences But more astonishing than that are the consequences of his sin being taken away. And if you've drifted in your concentration now, now is the time to come back. And I think fasten your seatbelts. This is so astonishing, I can hardly take it. The first of these consequences was this. Listen to this. God blessed David's marriage to Bathsheba. Can you cope with that? I can hardly cope with it. Look at verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. That's the first time that Bathsheba is not called the wife of Uriah, by the way. Now she's David's wife. And for the first time in the whole story, David began to treat her as his wife. He comforted her. You remember yesterday, there'd been no mention of comfort from David when Bathsheba had mourned the death of Uriah back in chapter 11. But now David comforted his wife. He was a changed man. But what did he say? I, think that, I, I find this very difficult to comprehend. Try and put yourself in this situation. What was going on? What, what did David say to Bathsheba to comfort her? Did he now come clean and admit to Bathsheba, I don't think she knew this before, before this point, did he now come clean with Bathsheba and admit his own role in her first husband's death? I am quite sure that he did. Did he explain that her child that had just died, died because he, David, had despised the word of the Lord? I'm quite sure he must have done so. How was it possible for this man to be a comfort to his wife? How could that happen? It was, friends, a miracle of grace. You see, the Lord really had taken away David's sin. And only so was it possible for David's marriage to Bathsheba now to be... Can you believe this? David's marriage to Bathsheba was not stained by David's sin. His sin really had been put away. That's extraordinary. I find it really hard to cope with. You hear people every now and again come up with things in the Bible they can't find hard to believe about God and they come up with all sorts of things. They're usually things that I find quite easy to cope with. But this one, no one comes up with this one. I find this one hard to cope with. Don't you? The description of his restored life continues. Look at verse 24 again. We're still in verse 24. Uh, and uh, And he went to her. He made love to her. She gave birth to a son and they, I think it's actually she in the original, it's a a little bit obscure as to who who did this, but I think it's Bathsheba who named him Solomon. You see, there was actually nothing illegitimate now about David's relationship with Bathsheba. How can that be right? Does that mean that actually David, in the end, benefited in the long run from his wrongdoing. Sounds like it, doesn't it? But that's not right. The really difficult for us to grasp thing is he benefited from God's grace. God really did take away his sin. And from this marriage... The son was born. The son was named, as I said, probably by Bathsheba, Solomon. Peace. It's from Shalom, you know, the, the, the word we all, the, the only word many of us know in Hebrew. Solomon. Peace. How was it possible for Bathsheba to give such a name? to the child born out of those terrible events that we heard about yesterday. She must have believed, mustn't she? That the Lord had taken away David's sin. Actually, he had taken his sin away. The hints that this marriage and this child now had God's full approval are confirmed Uh, Look at verse 24 again, the end of verse 24. And the Lord loved him. That's Solomon. The Lord loved Solomon. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him, give him another name, Jedediah, which means loved by the Lord. Now, of all the surprises in this astonishing story through these two chapters uh, I think this is the greatest of all the Lord loved Solomon David's marriage to Bathsheba was blessed by God Uh, as I hope you're getting the impression I find this almost incomprehensible I tell you it wouldn't have been blessed by me I couldn't do this could you Could you approve of this marriage if you knew the whole story? How could a marriage with such a beginning as this one receive God's favour? And the answer, just as difficult for us to comprehend, is that the Lord really did take away David's sin. He no longer took it into account. That's what it means. God no longer took it into account in his dealings with David. You see, God's grace really is amazing. In fact, amazing isn't a big enough word. We have to write another song with another word, bigger than amazing. I don't know what the word is. Perhaps we have to come up with a word. It's astonishing. It's shocking. It's disturbing. It's discomforting that God's grace would do such a thing. The Lord's love for Solomon is, almost certainly means that the Lord had set his love on Solomon as David's successor. And that, of course, is how the history unfolds. Uh, In this history, if you read the whole, and I hope you might be encouraged to get into uh, this history and uh, get your head around what happened, uh, Solomon isn't going to be mentioned again until 1 Kings chapter 1, when the time comes for him to become king. Uh, Let's very briefly glance at the last part of the chapter. Uh, Do you remember, if you were with us yesterday, how the whole story began with the army going off to siege uh, the city of Rabah of the Ammonites? Uh, that's how it all began. Uh, that was the time when uh, David first caught sight of Bathsheba from the palace roof, um, and uh, uh, over at Rabbah was where Uriah had been murdered, uh, at, uh, on David's command. Uh, what did the Lord, putting away David's sin, mean for David the king? Uh, just we'll very quickly look at this from verse twenty-six. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Uh, Joab then, um, excuse me a minute, Joab then, uh, I'm trying to cope with a different translation here. If you're wondering why I'm stumbling along here the last couple of days, I've, been try- I, I, I've uh, prepared this in one translation and I'm trying to share it with in another translation and every now and again I get caught, just got caught then. Um, let me start again, verse 26. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David saying, I fought against Rabbah and taken his water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. Joab, you see, was concerned to see that the victory brought honor to his king rather than to himself. Was Joab perhaps aware that David's reputation was in some danger at the moment from the recent events in Jerusalem and the rumours that were no doubt flying around? Did he see a need for some positive, not to mention distracting publicity at this point, possibly? Whatever his reasons, he called on David, he almost commanded David to come and lead the final assault. And so we read from verse 29, so David mustered the entire army and went to Rabah and attacked and captured it. David took the crown from the king's head uh, and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent of gold uh, and it was set with precious stones. David uh, took a great quantity of plunder from the city uh, and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labour with saws and iron picks and axes and he made them, working, uh, made them work at brick making. Uh, David did this to all the Ammonite towns. Uh, This is like the great victories uh, you can read about back in 2 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, What has happened and what you're seeing here, and again we're not going to go into any of the details, but here is King David restored. Restored to something like his former greatness. Here's the king who did defeat his enemies once again. And the extraordinary sequence of events that we've been following over this weekend that began in 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1, And because of which David's kingdom was now never going to be the same again, but it all concludes at the end of verse 31, then he, David, and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. If you're reading the story, a sense of foreboding is not out of place. Great troubles lay ahead for David and his kingdom. Troubles that flowed out of his own wickedness, As I've been saying again and again, it's not that his wickedness didn't have any consequences, it certainly did, as you read the rest of the story. But at this point, the amazing thing is that the king and his people returned to Jerusalem. For now, they were safe. For now, David was king, the restored king. Now, the story of David's restoration, as a man and as a king, is a remarkable story in the Old Testament history. It wasn't perfect, it wasn't complete, but it was enough to point us to the kingdom of God in which all things will be put back in their proper order. And it's enough to point us to the work of Jesus who's come to accomplish that. And for us to recognize as we live our lives, as we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, our king, so much greater than David, then what our king does for us by the grace of God is put our lives back in order again. It begins with the forgiveness of our sins. But then in lives that are changed and put back in order again, under his lordship, as we're made more and more the kind of people we were created to be. God is powerful. God is good. Friends, I hope that you rejoice in his power and his goodness. We've seen a glimpse of it in the story of David. We see it in full volume in the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust it's being seen in your life. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are God. You are powerful and you are good. So much of our experience confuses us and raises questions in our minds about this truth. We pray that you would focus our minds on the message of the Scriptures, the message of the Bible, the story the Bible tells of what you have done. Help us to appreciate what we have learnt from this story of David And his experience is extraordinary experience of your grace. Help us to realise that whatever mess there is in our lives, you are powerful and you are good. And help us to see that what Jesus has done means that human lives, even my life, can be restored. Restored. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you continue to do this work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.